Fourth Estate presents The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on a crisp walk through midwinter in its cold, glistening splendour, all the way up to Christmas Day. Along the path, there'll be recipes for some of your festive favourites and some new ideas too, to excite your palate in the cold months. You'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and a hundred essential recipes for midwinter, as well as some new content that we've recorded here at my home in North London. In this episode, we'll embrace the warmth of winter, the scented juices flowing from the kitchen, the soft lights of my home, as well as the sharp flavours of pickled quinces and rhubarb that will brighten your senses. I'll also talk you through my recipe for pickled rhubarb and salmon and a baked apple mascarpone fool. Sharp followed by sweet, the perfect way to liven and then settle. 13th of December, broth and bones coming in from the cold. I've been working in the garden, digging mostly, planting scented white narcissi into soil the colour of wet tobacco. White tulips, too, in old terracotta pots for the spring. My hands are scratched. The ground is heavy and sodden, and every step is like wading through treacle. The sun, a watery orange-pink seen through witchy black trees, is sliding down towards the earth, much like my wet socks have ruckled down my boots. It takes an age to get them off, standing first on one leg, then the other, outside the kitchen door, determined not to traipse any more mud into the house than absolutely necessary. The light from the kitchen windows has been beckoning, pleading almost, for me to come in. The kitchen door gets stiff on cold days, as if it doesn't want to let the cold air in, and who can blame it? The smell of dinner is coming from the oven. Calm waves of meat-scented juices that have cooked for hours. Mellow, savoury and nannying, the smell of my grandmother's kitchen, where she cooked on a blackened range that she fed hourly with coal. My dad said he was brought up on brown broth and potatoes. Through the glass oven door, I can just about recognise the casserole dish, portly, like St Nicholas, with its cargo of meat and bones. I've cooked many a good thing in that dish. A heavy lid to lift, a big spoon to lower into dark broth sweet onions and spoon-soft meat to lift into the hollows of deep plates. We pull the meat from the bones, most of which falls away with ease. The rest we pick up and gnaw. There is gravy on our plates, deep walnut brown, scented with woody herbs and shallots. We gnaw and slurp. The juice warms us and defrosts my frozen fingers. Our cheeks rush with colour, though maybe that's the red wine. This is the winter food I love. Patient food, recipes that wait for us, untroubled by the ticking of the clock or a gardener waiting to do just one more job. Dishes that are done when they're done and refuse to be hurried into readiness. Benign, good-natured recipes whose smells calm us, like an extra blanket on a stone-cold night, and warm us slowly, thawing out our frozen souls. Meat that melts from its bones, broths that restore, flavours that reassure. 
14th of December, pickled quinces and a Christmas stocking. Do you know why there is often an orange in the bottom of a Christmas stocking? No? Well then let me tell you. The story starts with a poor man who had three daughters. He worried about their future once he was dead. When St Nicholas was passing through their village, he heard the story and secretly threw three golden balls into the family's house. The balls landed in the girls' stockings which were hanging up in front of the fireplace to dry. The daughter's future was assured. And that is why, to this day, it is traditional to hide an orange in the foot of a Christmas stocking, a golden ball for good luck. The tradition of hanging a stocking out for gifts on Christmas Eve may well have started another way altogether. According to German legend, Odin, the god of Norse mythology, husband of the goddess Frigg, had a flying horse called Sleipner. At Christmas, children would stuff their boots with hay and sugar and place them near the chimney for Sleipner, who might be passing overhead. Odin returned the kindness by leaving gifts in their shoes to be found on Christmas morning. Either way, it is a rule that a large stocking should be hung on the mantelpiece on Christmas Eve. The next morning, it will be filled with small gifts, sweets and treats. An orange is barely considered a treat nowadays, but was once a rare and special find, so much so that they were always sold wrapped in tissue paper and foil. I gave up hanging my stocking aged seven. After that, it became a pillowcase at the foot of my bed. Such are the expectations of modern children. You can buy fancy stockings trimmed with cotton wool or embroidery or make them yourself. Some parents like to have their children's name emblazoned on them. Nowadays, they come filled with mobile phones and electronic games, books and chocolates. But I still think they should, in memory of the poor old man and his daughters, contain a foil-wrapped orange. I would rather like my own stocking to be filled with good things to eat. A jar of rose petal jam, a tin of jasmine tea, and a packet of sugared almonds in pastel colours. A greaseproof paper packet of thinly sliced hamoni berico, a perfect orange complete with its leaves, a jar of homemade marmalade or pickle, and a foil-wrapped chocolate orange. There could be a fruitcake in its tin, some dark chocolate-covered ginger biscuits and a pomegranate. You would make my day by including some sugar-dusted Turkish delight and a foil-wrapped tin of marron glacé. I would dearly love you to sneak in a packet of Japanese matcha-flavoured Kit Kats. Oh, and there could, of course, be a jar of pickled quinces. Fifteenth of December. Drinking winter. Raising a glass. Gingerbread biscuits with icing like melting snow. Steaming glasses of glow wine. Savoury puddings of bread and cheese. And a goose with golden skin and a puddle of apple sauce. There are stews of game birds with twigs of thyme and rosemary. Fish soups the colour of rust. And baked apples frothing at the brim. Winter is the time for marzipan filled stolen. Thick with powdered sugar pork chops as thick as a plank, and rings of Cumberland sausage sweet with dates and bacon. The flavours of winter come at us like paper-wrapped presents in a Christmas stocking. Ginger, aniseed, 
cardamom, juniper and cloves, the caramel notes of maple syrup, treacle, butterscotch and the damp muscovado sugars. Fruit dried on the vine and preserved in sugar. Ingredients too that hold the essence of the cold months. Red cabbage, russet apples, walnuts, smoked garlic, chestnuts, parsnips and cranberries. Winter cooking is clouds of mashed potato flecked with dark green cabbage, roasted onions glistening like brass bed knobs, and parsnips that crisp and stick molasses-like to the roasting tin. The food of the cold months is fatty cuts of meat, the flanks, shins and cheeks that we can leave to braise unhindered in a slow oven, with onions and thyme, wine and woody herbs, plodding silently towards tenderness. Meat you could cut with a spoon. Winter cooking is ham with a quince paste crust, game birds with red currant jelly, treacle sponge, and lebkuchen mince pies and marmalade tarts. Winter food is about both celebration and survival. It's about feasting, roast turkey, plum pudding and fruitcake, frugality, bean soups and mugs of miso broth. It is the food of hope, lentil soup for good luck on New Year's Day, and the food of love, the mug of hot cardamom spiced chocolate you make for a loved one on a freezing day. There is a gleeful abundance to late autumn and winter shopping, and a feeling of urgency to gather up things while we can. The last of the late fruiting raspberries and damsons well on their way to jam. The late white peaches and crisp as ice local pippins and russets, walnuts in their shells, and green figs with their soft, powdery scent. Late on an autumn evening, as I turn the corner to do my vegetable shopping, the heavy, sweet ripeness of the season hangs in the air. The glowing melons and late plums, the pumpkins and the last of the runner beans. Tomatoes, green and orange, red and gold. This is as good as food shopping gets. As the season slides into winter, you can feel the heavy, sweet air of autumn turning crisp and clean with each passing dawn. There is the return of chestnuts and sweet potatoes. Almonds in their shells, cream-fleshed parsnips, fat leeks and muscat grapes with their scent of sugary wine and honey. There are squashes shaped like acorns and others that resemble turbans to bake and stuff and beat into piles of fluffy mash. Pomegranates. I love to see one or two cut in half on the display so we know whether we are buying jewels or pith. And proper big-as-your-hat apples for baking. The game birds are lined up at the butchers, their featherless breasts kept warm by fatty bacon and a bay leaf, partridges, pheasants and quail to roast, pigeons to bring to tenderness slowly with red wine and onions, and quails to split, skewer and grill till their skin blackens and their bones crunch. As the winter wears on, we see the first of the turkeys dressed for the feast, fat ducks and hams ready to boil, bake and slice. That said, I don't go wholly along with the idea of winter food as a source of comfort and cosseting, solace and warmth. I still want a crackling fresh salad, a plate of fruit to finish my meal, food that refreshes. I don't drop my need for a daily bowl of leaves and herbs lightly dressed just because there is frost on the ground 
and wood smoke in the air. It is all here, by the way, in what follows. Drinking winter, raising a glass. Nothing changes quite so dramatically with the seasons as what I drink. Gone the glasses of rosé in the garden as the evening light falls, the artisan gin, cucumber and tonic. Gone too the lemon verbena tea, glistening like absinthe in its fragile glass pot. Winter brings a whole new type of refreshment. Hot cider in a thick glass, frothy cocoa in a mug, buckwheat tea smelling of toast and warm rice. The drinks of winter smell different, of cloves and cinnamon, honey and fruit, rice and smoke, damson and cardamom. I make my favourite winter drink in early autumn, so it's ready for Christmas. Damsons squirrelled away in a bottle of gin, as happy as fruit could ever be. The recipe, by the way, is in Tender, Volume 2. I make cocoa thick and creamy, beaten to a froth with a little whisk, and serve it in deep mugs to keep it hot right through to the end. It is part of the ritual of drinking cocoa that the first sip scalds your lips. Cardamom seeds, crushed beneath the weight of a pestle and mortar, have much to offer to a mug of hot, dark chocolate. Apple drinks abound, hot juice mulled with cinnamon sticks and cloves, steaming cider with orange peel, cider brandy, sugar and cream. For the feast there are frivolous sparkly things, sometimes flushed with pomegranate or blood orange, and occasionally a hot toddy in a glass dotted with condensation. Even tea changes with the weather. The light green teas I drink in summer, welcome at any time of year, take a step back, while the roasted teas, full of smoky notes and the humble, cosy notes of toasted rice, take their place. The alcohol level rises as the temperature dips. It is the only time of year the eau de vie come out, the fruit liqueurs whose potency hides under a cloak of fruit and syrup. My winters start with the sight of the first damsons in the shops, the first bonfires lit. They end in late March, when I take off to the coldest place I can find, and then, in an attempt to hold on to it all, I end up in Japan, Iceland or Finland. I eat a cup of crab soup in a hut on the harbour in Reykjavik, or a thoughtful, foraged meal at one of my favourite restaurants in Helsinki, where each meal is peppered with Douglas fir or shoots of young green spruce, rowan berries picked from a tree in the churchyard, or an ice cream made from the young green berries of juniper, chef's cooking, full of imagination and playfulness, and a world away from the simple fodder I make at home. And then, full of the last tastes of winter, I step out into the cold for the last time. And now a recipe. Baked apple mascarpone fool. The point of baking the apples here rather than stewing them is the caramelised honey sweetness you get from their time in the oven. A rather nice touch is to finish this soft and creamy dessert with a couple of slices of apple something crisp and firm like a cox that you have fried for two minutes in a little butter and sugar until it starts to caramelise. This serves four. Sharp apples, such as Bramley, 850 grams. 
caster sugar, 100 grams, double cream, 250 mils, sweet marsala, 4 tablespoons, mascarpone, 125 grams. Heat the oven to 200 degrees centigrade, gas mark 6. Core the apples and score a line around the circumference of each fruit, piercing just below the skin, then place them snugly in a roasting tin. The scoring will stop the fruit exploding as they cook. Bake the apples for about 20 to 25 minutes, taking an occasional peep to see their progress. They're ready when they are risen and the top has fluffed up like a souffle. If they've collapsed into a puddle of froth, no matter. Remove the fruit from the oven and scrape the flesh into a bowl, using a small spoon, discarding the skins as you go. If there are any caramelised juices in the tin, combine them with the apple, then set aside. Put the sugar, cream and marsala into the bowl of an electric mixer and beat until thick and creamy, but not so stiff that the mixture can stand in peaks. Fold in the mascarpone and combine with the crushed apple, taking care not to overmix. Sixteenth of December. Pickles, pruning and a baked apple. I crave sharp, piquant flavours. That snap of acidity, that spike of lemon or vinegar, a spoonful of fruit chutney, a curl of soused fish, or a little pile of pickles on my plate. It is these bright, clean, acidic side notes that keep me interested in what I'm eating. This morning, I saw the first of the forced rhubarb, a box of delicate pink stalks sold by the long, straight stem like amaryllis. By forced, I mean grown under lights in warm, dark sheds rather than out of doors. They were too expensive for a crumble or a cake, so I bought a couple only, and will wait a week or two for the price to come down. Rhubarb like this, early, tender, as pretty as apple blossom, is something I wait for each year, as I do gooseberries and damsons. This is the earliest I've ever seen. I came late to pickles. It's the price I paid for having first tried the dark, sugary, sour pickle of commerce, hating it, and then deciding that all pickles must be the same. If only that initial taste had been a crisp, dill-pickled gherkin, or a roll mop. If those first mouthfuls had been village fate chutney or a forkful of homemade pickled cabbage, I wouldn't have wasted so much time thinking pickles weren't for me. Sitting watching television, it is not a sweet I crave, or a biscuit, but a stinging hit of pickled fig or cucumber, a teaspoon of fruit vinegar, or the crunch of a few wisps of sauerkraut, and never more so than now, in the depths of winter. Only the last few leaves remain on the trees. There are still a few on the horse chestnuts, the medlar and the cornus, but mostly they lie in deep, crisp piles, ripe for kicking. Winter trees have a stark beauty. Shorn of their fluff of green leaves, their bones are slowly revealed, their architecture is apparent. It is only now that we see the full beauty of their bark, their lichen and moss and their handsome shape. It is an unsullied beauty, simple and strong. It is also now we can see which branches need to go, the tangles of twigs that need thinning, the branches the trees would be better without. Vines and most freestanding fruit trees are best pruned in the winter, when they are dormant and before the sap rises once more. In the garden, 
I sought out the muddle of medlar branches, cutting out with a small yellow saw the branches that cross one another. When I swapped lawn for trees and bushes all those years ago, it never occurred to me that even in a compact urban garden I would ever find a use for a saw. The shape of the removed wood is elegant, a forked branch whose grey bark is encrusted with dots of yellow lichen. It gets to live another day in a huge glass vase on the dining table. And now, a recipe. Pickled rhubarb and salmon. A good start of this. Something to sharpen the appetite, as so few first courses do. It serves two. White wine vinegar, 150 mils. Golden caster sugar, a tablespoon. Black peppercorns, 10, and six of white. Coriander seeds, one teaspoon. Fennel seeds, half a teaspoon. Rhubarb, 100 grams. Pea shoots, two handfuls. Samphire, watercress or other green shoots, 50 grams. And 300 grams of salmon. Combine the vinegar, sugar, peppercorns, coriander and fennel seeds in a stainless steel saucepan and bring to the boil. Remove from the heat. Slice the rhubarb into small pieces no thicker than a centimetre and put them in a bowl then pour over the pickling liquid, cover and set aside to cool. Leave in a cool place for three hours. The rhubarb should still retain something of its crispness, but it will be deliciously sweet sour. Wash and dry the salad leaves. Remove the skin from the salmon and slice the fish into small cubes, about a centimetre. Divide the salad leaves between two plates or shallow bowls. Toss the salmon and pickled rhubarb together and serve on the salad leaves, together with a trickle of oil and a little of the pickling liquor. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and 100 essential recipes for midwinter is available now in hardback, audio, and ebook and published by Fourth Estate. Join me again in our next chapter as we delve further into the season and I share some more recipes and wintered stories. Mm-hmm.